Settle in. Where are the men? Where are the men? Yeah? All right, if you wooed, we got some work to do. Um, if you sat there stoically with your arms crossed and said, I'm right here. Uh, you, we, you can might as well leave. Uh, so this morning, we are in the fourth week of our uh, marriage series, and we are talking specifically this morning to the men. Men. Manliness. That's Ron Swanson that we just saw a minute ago. If you watch Parks and Rec, he is a definition of a man on that show. Talking to the men this morning. So I'm going to talk as a man to men. So just know that my tone may be a little bit harsher in parts than it would be if I was talking specifically to a mixed gender crowd. However, I'm going to talk specifically to the men. So this morning, men, just be aware that I may, I'm going to be talking directly to you. Women, you are allowed to listen in. Uh, you are allowed to say amen uh, when you agree with something that needs to be said. And at the end, we're going to talk about your part in this as well. What makes a male a man? What makes a man a man? Traditionally, there were two phases in the life of males. There was boyhood and there was manhood. And the transition from boyhood to manhood took place in several ways, but specifically there were five specific actions that happened that transitioned a boy into a Man, the five were you moved out of your mama's house, you finished your education or you prepared for your vocation, you pursued a career, you loved a woman, honored her, courted her, and married her, and then you raised children with her. Boy, men. However, over the last several years, our culture has created something that called adolescence or what we call pre-adulthood which is where men who are of age to be men stretch out their boyhood indefinitely. And we see this working out by our culture's fascination with what we will call the dude. You know, he's not a man, he's a dude. And this dude is doing everything that he can to put off manhood and hold on to boyhood. He's trying to hold on to that adolescence, that teenage years. And we see this through guys, grown men of age who are still addicted to video games, bar hopping, pornography, and the much celebrated culture of hookup, shack up, and break up. We see as men, we have begun to stretch out this period of adolescence as long as we possibly can even well into our 30s. I read a statistic this week that in 1960, 70% of 25-year-old men were married, 85% of 30-year-old men were married. In 2000, that same survey was done, 28% of, of, I'm sorry, 48% of 25-year-old men were married and only 50% of 30-year-old men were married. We're beginning to see this period of time where we stretch out adolescence and we see we see young males putting off the responsibilities of manhood in favor of things that they did as boys. And what we've seen in our culture now is that it is very possible for you to be an adult male and not be a man. This morning, I got real quiet in here, so it's going to be real good this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about manhood and that manhood is much more an issue of theology than it is of biology. Let me say that again. Manhood 
is much more an issue of theology than it is of biology. So let's look in the scriptures to see what the scripture says constitutes biblical manhood. If you have a Bible this morning, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. It is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. If you don't have a Bible this morning, it's going to be on the screen. Uh, This verse is also on the back of the worship guide that we handed you this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we would love to give you one. Um, We've got several Bibles out of the connection table. If you just stop by on your way out this morning and just say, hey, I don't have a Bible, we would love to put one in your hands. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 and 14 is where we're going to start this morning. Paul writes to the elders at Corinth, and he writes this to them. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let everything that you do be done in love. Now, I believe that Paul tells us five things here. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Let everything that you do be done in love. The main sentence that we want to look at this morning is that middle thing that he tells us. Act like men. What does it mean to act like a man? Does it have something to do with facial hair? Does it have something to do with how tough you are? Does it have something to do with uh, the power and the wealth that you have assembled that makes you a man? I don't think that it does. I think that the four things surrounding that phrase, act like a man, will give us a clue as to what Paul was asking the church at Corinth to do, to act like men. So we're going to table act like men for just a minute, okay? We're going to come back to that at the very end. But I want to look at the four other things that Paul tells the church at Corinth to do. He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. Be strong and let everything that you do be done in love. I believe in these four things we can see the idea of biblical manhood. So let's look at the first one. Be watchful. I believe that Paul is talking about responsibility here. Be watchful. When someone says to be watchful, it assumes the idea of responsibility. It assumes the idea of responsibility. So the first thing I want you to say about biblical manhood, a man assumes responsibility, a dude avoids responsibility. A man assumes responsibility, a dude avoids responsibility. When someone is watchful, it assumes that they are responsible. The term carries with it a very protective feel. It's like one who watches out for an enemy. I think about a a watchman or someone in the watchtower. They are uh, on guard and trying to protect the things that are theirs, that are important to them. And I think the same thing can go with Paul when he says, be watchful. As a man, you are called to be responsible. You and I are called to be responsible. And what we have seen in our culture, the culture of the dude, is a total abdication of responsibilities on the part of men. Men are doing everything that they can to move out from underneath responsibility and push responsibility off onto either other men or onto women. This is not what Paul commands us to do as men. And we see, sadly, more and more men vacating their responsibilities in the culture, in the home, and in the church. Paul says, be watchful, be responsible. Men, we're not... We were not designed to avoid responsibility. Uh, Mark Driscoll said this, and I thought it was genius. Uh, He's a pastor in Seattle, and he said, Men are like trucks. 
They drive better with a load. When you put a load on a man, a responsibility on a man, he, it drives him more. Why? Because we were hardwired for responsibility. In Genesis chapter 2, I'm going to show you this verse. It's going to be on the screen. You don't have to turn there. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Right after God has created everything, and he's created Adam, the first man. It says in Genesis 2.15 that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So you see that when God creates Adam, the first thing that he does is he does what? Gives him responsibility. He puts him to work. Man's first task was to serve, not to be served. And I think we've missed that in our culture. Adam understands that God puts him to work. He gives him a responsibility to be in the garden, to work it, and to keep it. Notice that God gives Adam a job before he gives him a wife. God gives Adam a job before he gives Adam a wife. I'm just going to put that out there, singles. You can take that how you want. But when God gives Adam a wife, what does he do? He extends Adam's responsibility. So now Adam has responsible for caring for the garden. But then in Genesis uh, chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, it says, The man said at last, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God gives him a wife. And Adam says, at last. I love that Charlie talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's almost like a poem, like a song. Like he busts out in a freestyle rap. And when he sees the woman, he's like, oh, at last. I don't have to look at these tigers or these elephants anymore. I'm looking at a, at a beautiful, naked woman. This is my wife. And God says, this is your wife. And Adam says, I'm going to call her woman because she was taken from man. And I'm going to leave my father and mother. And we're going to cleave together as one flesh. She will become my responsibility. And as men, we like that. Yes, my woman is my responsibility. I am the head of the household. Bring me a sandwich. We like that idea. But notice in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? When the woman sins, when she takes the fruit and she gives some to Adam, notice who God holds responsible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? Who does he call to? The man. He says, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave me. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. You see, see, see that? That subtle shift in Adam's responsibility from Genesis 2? At last, she will be my wife. I'm, she is my responsibility. I'm going to care for her, take care of her. I'm, she will be mine. And then in Genesis 3, when things start going south, Adam goes, man, that, not me. That woman that you gave me, she messed up. I don't, that wasn't me. Who does God come to? He comes to the man. See, men, we are the head of the household, yes. But one day, God will hold you responsible for the way that you have loved your wife and your children. This is your number one responsibility as a man. This is God's call on your life. 
You are the one who will love and provide for your wife and your children and one day present them to Jesus. So how are we doing on that? How are we doing on that? A couple weeks ago, Charlie said this one thing, and it really stuck with me. Um, He talked about the fact that everything else that we do is a distraction to this responsibility. And what we've done is we've, we've made that backwards. I'm guilty of this, okay? If I'm watching TV or I'm, I'm reading or I'm doing something on the internet, my wife comes to me and wants to talk, my, my, my first instinct is to just go, yeah, baby, that's right, and go right back to what I'm doing. In my mind, what I've done is I've created my wife as a distraction to all the other things that I want to do, my hobbies, my job, my phone, my wife is a distraction to these things, but God says it ought to be the reverse. Everything in your life is a distraction to you, the way that you love and raise your children, the way that you serve and honor your wife. Everything else is a distraction to that because at the end, God's not going to call you and ask you to present to him your hobbies. He's going to say, I, I made you responsible for this woman and these children. What have you done? We like the idea of responsibility, but responsibility comes with a lot, comes with a load, man. So let us not be dudes who do everything that we can to avoid responsibility. Let us be men who do everything that we can to assume responsibility. Young men who are single in this room, begin right now to prepare yourself to be a good husband and a good father. Finish your education, pursue a vocation, move out of your mom's basement, put down the video game controller, get a job and show up on time, take a shower, pursue a woman, marry her and raise kids together. This is your responsibility as men, married men. Want to know how you're doing in the responsibility realm? Ask your wife. Now, that's going to be a tough conversation. Ask your wife and then don't argue with what she says. Because we'll be like, baby, how am I doing? No, you are wrong. I'm doing way better than that. Ask your wife. She is the referee. She becomes the referee. When you say, baby, how am I doing? How am I serving you? How am I loving you? How am I honoring you? How am I serving our kids? Your wife will give you a much more honest picture of how you're doing than you could give yourself. And that's going to flip around next week. So, man, just hold tight. Next week when we talk about womanhood, you're going to be like, amen, brother. (laughs) Tried to tell you last week. Married men, look for ways that you can be connected to your wife and kids. Help with the housework and the homework. Any boy can be a father. It takes a real man to be a dad. Secondly, stand firm in the faith. First, Paul says, be watchful. Secondly, he says, stand firm in the faith. This means to be grounded in Jesus. Stand firm in the faith. Be grounded in Jesus. A man builds his life on Jesus. A dude builds his life on himself. A man builds his life on Jesus. A dude builds his life on himself. In Luke 6, 46 through 49, Jesus tells this parable. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and then not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Every man will build his life on something. Every man in here is building his life on something. 
I'm building my life on something. You are building your life on something. What are you building it on? What are you building your life on? What do you want your legacy to be? Are, you, are we building our life on wealth and power and fame or family? Ultimately, if we're building our lives as men on anything else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will fail and lead to your ruin and the ruin of your household. There's a great book that I would suggest to, to any of you, but specifically to men. Uh, it's by a guy named Tim Keller, and it's called Counterfeit Gods, The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power. It's just a short little book, couple, maybe like a little over 100 pages. You can pick it up on Amazon for about $10. I would highly recommend that to you. What are you building your life on, men? Notice in this parable that the only difference between the two men in the parable is the foundation on which they built. Both men are building, right? Both men build. Both men are visited by the flood, the storm, but only one house stands. It's the same kind of thing. You've got two guys, both of them building on something. Both of them are visited by the storm, but in the end, only one stands. It's the one with his foundation on the rock. Men, what is the foundation of your life? What are you building your life on? If it's anything other than Jesus, let me just give you this warning from Jesus himself. One day, it's going to fail. If it's anything other than Jesus, one day, it's going to fail. Now, some of you men who are here who say, you know what? I am building my, I'm trying really hard to build my life on Jesus. That's fantastic. What kind of house are you building on that foundation? What kind of house are you building on that foundation? Because that's important, right? It's important. Jesus is your foundation, but what kind of house are you building? How are you going about making sure that the, that the, the house that you're building is competent with the foundation? Are you in a missional community? Are you in a huddle? Are you, are you reading the word daily? Are you confessing sin and repenting of it? Are you actively attending and serving the church? Are you allowing other godly men to speak into your life? Or have you built, or have you got Jesus as your foundation, but you're trying to build the house by yourself? We are called to build the house together. Men, there is a place for you here. There are other godly men who desire to speak into your life. Not in a judgmental way, but in a, but in a way as a brother coming alongside a brother, as soldiers together in the battle saying, we're going to build this house together, you and I. The foundation is solid. What's the house like? Third, he says, be strong. First, Paul says, be watchful. Then he says, stand firm in the faith. Build your life on Jesus. Third, he says, be strong. Strength means to be tough and tender. A man is both tough and tender. A dude is tough or tender. A man is, is both tough and tender. A dude is either tough or tender. Jesus is our example of both toughness and tenderness. And when it comes to toughness and tenderness, a real man will be both and, not either or. Mark Driscoll, who I quote from a lot, says this, Jesus was tough enough to go to the cross without shedding a tear, yet was tender enough to weep over the death of a friend. Jesus was tough enough to go to the cross without shedding a tear, 
was tender enough to weep over the death of a friend. Let me show you an example of the toughness of Jesus, because I don't think we see a lot of this. I think uh, in most churches, we kind of have that like oil painting of Jesus in the back where he's like white, blue eyes, and he's got like the feathered hair. You just picture him like floating on a cloud with like a sash, passing out suckers to kids. You know, like he's just kind of like the tooth fairy. You know, that's the way that we've kind of pictured this Jesus that we've conjured up in our mind. Let me show you a little bit about the toughness of Jesus. In John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, it says the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, let me give you a little background on this story. What's happening here is as people are coming to the temple, they have to, um, they have to bring a sacrifice with them, okay? And a lot of the times, if you were poor, you didn't have a lamb to bring with you, so you had to find something else. You had to find a, a pigeon or a dove or something you couldn't afford. And what was happening is there were men who were sitting outside the temple knowing that poor people had to bring a sacrifice, and they were upping the prices on their sacrifices and taking advantage of the poor, so I can picture Jesus and the disciples walking up and the disciples are going, oh man, Jesus, you want some of this? And Jesus is in the back going, yeah, I got something for him. Yeah, no, no. Let me, let me just, like Indiana Jones style, all right? Like, like think Jesus fedora, like, you know, like a, sa- like a satchel. All right, and he's got the whip. And Jesus is fashioning a whip of cords and he goes in and he drives out the money changers. This was not a random fit of anger or rage from Jesus. This was Jesus defending those who could not defend themselves. And as a man, you are called to be tough enough to defend those who cannot defend themselves. This isn't about ultimate fighter Jesus who's picking fights. This is about Jesus who goes, these men are wicked and they need to be confronted and I'm going to do the confronting. This is the toughness of our Savior. We take from his example that as men, we should never be afraid to stand up for what is right. As a man, you are called to stand up for what is right. But Jesus was not only tough, because I don't think many of us have a problem with the tough side of it, all right? Let somebody cut you off in traffic, and you're like, I got this tough part down. All right? Here's the, here's the other part of Jesus. He was also tender. Now, they were bringing infants to him. This is Luke 18, 15 through 17. Now, they were bringing infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called to them, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does, enter, whoever does not enter the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. See, at this time, children were considered secondary citizens. So for Jesus, taking time to care about the children shows that he is tender and is concerned even for those who are less than. We see the toughness of Jesus driving out the wicked men who are taking advantage of the poor. And we see the tenderness of Jesus in calling the children to himself. Men, are you tough enough to stand up for what is right, but are you tender enough to care for those who cannot care for themselves? Real biblical manhood is a balance of toughness and tenderness. And as sinful humans, as sinful men, you and I both, we have to strike that balance between the two extremes of physically aggressive Neanderthal and timid, effeminate coward. We got to walk that line, men. See, a man is both tough and tender, and a dude is tough or tender. You see, in our culture that we've seen um, that to be a man, you have to be tough. 
And that if you're tender, it's a show, it, it's, a, it's a sign of weakness or a sign of not having strength. Jesus doesn't show that. He says, be tough and tender. But we've been fooled as a culture into believing that the manliest of men among us are those who are physically strong, emotionally dead, mentally shallow, and spiritually apathetic. It is a lie. You are not the biggest man in the room because you knocked out the most teeth in college. You are not the biggest man in the room because you can drink your buddies under the table. You are not the biggest man in the room because your wife and your children are intimidated of you. You are the biggest man in the room when you are tough enough to stand up for what is right and tender enough to love your wife, your children, and to care for those who are less than. A real man is tough and tender. Finally, fourth, let everything that you do be done in love. Let everything that you do be done in love. So Paul says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, be strong. He says, let everything you do be done in love. Men are servant leaders. Men are called to be servant leaders. A man is a servant leader. A dude is a controlling boss. A man is a servant leader. A dude is a controlling boss. Luke 22, 24 through 27. I know I'll use a lot of scripture, but I use that so you just know that I'm not making this stuff up. Luke 22, 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them will be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, to the kings of the Gentiles, exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For he is, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus establishes himself as the greatest servant. This is the God of the universe reclining at the table with lowly fishermen. This is the creator serving the creation. Jesus tells them if they want to be truly great, they are to be servants to one another. He says, you want to be truly great? You serve one another. This, I believe, is the most brilliant display of biblical manhood. The servant leader. Leading others by serving them. Leading others by serving them. And serving them out of your love for them. Man, if, if we could grasp this idea of the servant leader, it would revolutionize the idea of manhood in our churches, in our communities, in our homes. That we as men are not called simply to be the leaders, but to be the servant leaders, the chief of all servants. It is our responsibility to serve our wives and our responsibility to serve our children and our responsibility to serve our neighbors. And we want to lead other men by serving. You want to know how to grow in your manhood, men? Practice becoming a servant leader. Lead those around you by serving them. Lead your families by placing their needs above your own. Love them enough to make your life less about you and more about them. Servant leaders must be humble enough to be led by Jesus and by other godly men, yet competent enough to lead. 
in their homes, at their jobs, in the church. Humble enough to be led, but competent enough to lead. Men, we are called to be servant leaders. So you've seen the distinction here between a man and a dude. A man assumes responsibility, builds his life on Jesus, and is a tough and tender servant leader. A dude avoids responsibility, builds his life on himself, and are tough or tender bosses. So let's go back to our opening phrase as I close. What does Paul say to the church at Corinth? He says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let everything that you do be done in love. Now let's go back to that that middle phrase, act like a man. What does it mean to act like a man? What I've given you over the last 20 minutes or so that we've been talking is I've given you what it looks like to be a man. Responsibility, grounded in Jesus, tough and tender, servant leader. But if we're going to do these things, how will we do them? Okay, because what I have just done is I've set the bar way up here. And if you're honest with yourself, you're looking at it going, man, I'm limbo and under that thing. Like I, I, am, I am coming in way under that bar. Let me be honest with you, me too. So if we're going to look to these things, if we're going to strive towards these things, where's the power to do so? Where's the power to do so? And I believe that the answer lies in the phrase, act like a man. The answer lies in the phrase, act like a man. So we're going to have to do a little bit of a, of a lesson here. The phrase, act like a man, is actually only one word in the Greek language. It's only one word in the Greek language. And it's only used in the New Testament right here. The one time that it's used is right here where it says, act like a man. And the word, I'm going to butcher it. I'm not a Greek scholar. I don't speak Greek. Anybody here speak like fluent Greek? Okay. No. Okay. Awesome. Cool. So you won't even know. I should have even told you that I was going to butcher it. Then you would have been like, oh, I learned something today. The word is andridzomi. Andridzomi. It's only used once here in the New Testament. Act like a man. But it's used several times in what we know as the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it's used several times in the Old Testament. Act like a man is the word andridzomi. And the word andridzomi actually means to be strong and courageous. It means to be strong and courageous. And it's used several times in the Old Testament. Most uh, usually, um, or most notably, it's used for men or as, as generals encourage soldiers. And they say to soldiers getting ready to go into war, they say, andridzomi, act like a man, be strong and courageous. So you understand kind of the context of this word, andridzomi, be strong and courageous. But the most notable time that it's used in all of scripture is in Joshua chapter one. In Joshua chapter one, Moses has just died and the Lord comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, you're gonna take the people of Israel and you're gonna go into the land that I promised to inherit, that I promised to give to your fathers and you're gonna take this land by military might. So he's telling Joshua, get up. It's time to go. It's time to 
Put the women and the children aside, and it's time for you to get the men and go to war. And I'm going to give you the land that I promised to give to Moses. And in Joshua 1, 6, and 7, and we'll finish at verse 9, God says this to Joshua. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous and dridzo me. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them only and dridzo me. Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. And dridzo me. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. How many times in just these four verses does God tell Joshua to be strong and courageous? Three times. He says, and dridzo me to Joshua three times. And he says it in this way. He tells Joshua to be strong and courageous to accept the task of going. He tells Joshua to be strong and courageous to obey the word. And he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous and don't be afraid. How can Joshua do all these things? How can he be strong and courageous in the face of accepting this task, in the face of obeying the word, in the face of not being fearful? It's all tied together in verse 9 where God says, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua's power to have strength and courage to accept the task, obey the word, and not not be afraid comes from God, who is with him wherever he goes. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. Paul says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. And dridzo me. Act like a man. Be strong and courageous. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Men, you and I do not have the power nor the capability to live up to the expectations of biblical manhood. But you know who does? Jesus. And Paul says, and dridzo me, that as you are watchful, stand firm in the faith, are strong in doing everything that you do in love, the Lord is with you wherever you go. The power for you to be a man in this culture, in this generation, comes from the Father who loves you, created you, and designed you for the responsibilities that he's given you. Let's not lose that. Let's not lose that. That it comes from the Lord. So the bottom line, walk out of here with this idea. The command, the example And the power for manhood comes from Jesus. The command, the example, and the power for manhood comes from Jesus. Men, this has been a tough sermon. I'll give you my email address later. You can tell me, you know, dude, you're an idiot. I should have punched you and shown you what a man I am. You know, like... Understand that, I, that I, I didn't come up here to just start taking swings at you. I'm doing this out of love. I'm doing this out of love because our desire as a church is to be a church where men are men 
And we love Jesus. We love our wives. We love our children. And we work hard to advance the kingdom of God in our community. That's what we want to see. And for us to get there, it starts with the men. We've got to begin to strive towards biblical manhood, knowing that we don't do it in our own power. But as we strive for these things, we do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, who is with Joshua and is with you. So next week, women, how can you foster an environment where your husband can be a biblical man? How can you do what you need to do, what God's called you to do, in order to help your husband with his responsibilities? What responsibilities do you have as a wife, as a mother, as a, as a single female out there? What responsibilities do you have as a single female to make sure that the, the men who are pursuing you or the men who are in relationship with you are doing what God's called them to do? That's a whole other sermon. It's next week, and I hope you'll be back. Man, I love you. Grateful for you. Let's grow in Jesus together. Would you pray with me? God, we are just, as we just sang, amazed in your presence. And God, you have called us to a higher calling. God, you have called us to better things. And Father, I pray that this morning as we've talked about what it looks like to be a man, Father, you have stirred something in our hearts. You have stirred something in our souls, Father. That we would accept the task, that we would obey the word, that we would not be afraid because you've promised to go with us. So God, I pray for the men in this room. I pray for the husbands in this room. I pray for the fathers in this room. God, that they would accept the task, obey the word, and not be afraid, Father. God, that you would raise up a generation of men in this church, in this community, that love you, that love their wives, that love their children, that want to see the kingdom advanced in this place. Father, go with us. We don't want to go unless your presence leads us up from this place. Help us to accept the challenge. I pray for the wives and the mothers and the women in this room, God. Women who have been hurt by boys pretending to be men. God, I just pray for their hearts. God, that you would raise up men around them that show them Jesus. Thank you for Jesus, who is our example. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He took responsibility for me, for my sins when he went to the cross. We love you. Accept the praise that we sing to you this morning. Change hearts in this place. Let us run hard after you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.